Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here. My new podcast is called It's Been a Minute. That's another way of saying let's catch up. Every Friday, I'll sit down with two guests, smart talkers from inside and outside NPR, to catch up on the week of news and culture, everything. If you can't stop watching the news, but you're also exhausted by doing that, this show is for you. Don't miss out. Find It's Been a Minute now on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks. What's good, y'all? You're listening to the Code Switch podcast. I'm Gene Demby. My co-host, Shireen, is out reporting this week. So about a year ago, I was at the barbershop. My barber, Vince, was lining up my beard. And in the seat to my right was someone else who spun around really excitedly and started talking to me <laughs> like, yo, I, I want to tell you this thing. It turned out that was Sonari Glinton. Was that your impression of me? Yeah, that was my impression. Sonari, <laughs> <laughs> who you just heard, is a business correspondent here at NPR. Y'all may know his voice from Planet Money. Anyway, Sonari was telling me in the barbershop this story that was sticking in his head about this guy named Tom Burrell. So tell me about this Tom Burrell cat and why you found him so fascinating. Well, he literally transformed advertising. I mean, and this genius idea that Tom Burrell comes up with is very simple. Which idea is that? It's put black people in ads and more people will buy the stuff that you're advertising. <laughs> this seems right? very obvious to me, yes. That is what genius is, Gene. Mm-hmm. It is doing something that no one has done before you that seems very simple. That is what Tom Burrell helped advertising to do. He was one of the first people to put African-Americans in major ad campaigns for a general audience. And you said that Tom Burrell basically pioneered the idea of targeted advertising. Yes, because essentially what happens is when you realize that black people exist, then someone else goes, and you know what, they're Latinos, and then they're women, and then there's all these other groups, and you keep slicing the pie. And what we realize is all advertising now is targeted advertising. I'm looking for a bed right now, right? When I'm on Facebook, all the bed companies are advertising specifically to me. Mm-hmm. That is an innovation. It's not just diversity for Kumbaya's sake. It is changing the way we buy and sell. And so, Sonari did a great piece on Tom Burrell, along with Robert Smith of Planet Money, and we're going to play that piece right now. Back in the 1950s, Tom Burrell was in high school, and he had to take one of those aptitude tests, you know, those tests that tell you what you should be when you grow up. And he takes the test, and he scores super high in persuasiveness and artistic ability. And his teacher says, oh, persuasiveness, artistic ability, there's only one profession for you, advertising. Tom Burrell is not the kind of guy who shies away from things, and so he gets to college and he's like, bring on the advertising world. Well, a professor of his sits him down and tells him, you are smart, you are persuasive. The problem is there are no black people in advertising. Still, Tom Burrell is not dissuaded. He sees an opening in the mailroom, in the mailroom of Wade Advertising in Chicago, and he applies. And the good news, he is the only applicant. He is a shoe-in. Well, except this is 1961. To hire me was a major senior management decision. The chairman, the president, the executive vice president, senior vice president, they met and conferred over the issue of even hiring a, a, a Negro. And then after they interviewed me, they met to determine whether they were going to go ahead with this, quote, revolutionary kind of move to hire a, a, a Negro uh, boy to work in the mailroom, in the mailroom. 
in the mailroom. That was a major executive decision that brought the chairman all the way back from his his home in Delray, Florida, to, to have a meeting to decide that. And after deliberating, the decision was made. They let him in. He got the job. And now Tom Burrell was something few people had seen before, a black man in advertising. So y'all remember those McDonald's commercials with Calvin? Remember Calvin? What's up, Jake? What up? Where's Calvin? At the J-O-B, man. What? He's still flipping those burgers at Mickey D's. Here's your order. Thanks, Calvin. Turns out that was all Tom Burrell. Meet the newest member of our management team, Calvin. That and more after the break. Support for this podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is committed to helping employers build great companies by making it easy to find and hire top talent. Using advanced matching technology, ZipRecruiter actively connects employers with qualified candidates in any city or industry nationwide. In fact, 80% of jobs on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just one day. Try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com switch. Support also comes from Delta Airlines, who wants to make your travel experience informed, connected, and seamless. With the Fly Delta app, you'll always be able to locate your bags. The app has real-time bag tracking with RFID, giving you peace of mind in your hand. Download the Fly Delta app now. It is 1961. Tom Burrell has started his new job in the mailroom, and he looks around at Wade Advertising in Chicago, and he realizes this place is about as boring as you can get. It had these really safe kind of big brands that never took any chances. Robin Hood Flower, Alka-Seltzer, the Grand Old Opry. Advertising theory at the time was that to sell products, it had to be really sort of generic, nothing too spicy. You don't want to offend anybody. One size fits all, targeted at everyone who owned a television set. With Alka-Seltzer, relief is just a swallow away. Try it. It probably goes without saying that you could watch Alka-Seltzer ads all day long in the 1960s and never see a non-white face. Burrell really liked the agency. He was really happy just to be in advertising. The people were good to him. They treated him well. And there weren't a ton of those awkward moments that you might expect from being the only black guy in that agency. Except for one. You know, it was the Christmas party. It's always the Christmas party, Robert. This is when the CFO of the company walks up to him and says, Tom, you know, we're happy you're here. And we're wondering if next year you would be willing or interested in singing some down-home songs. <laughs> so, What were you thinking think, when, when he said that? What did you think? I, I, think I, I think I did the same thing I just did. I think I laughed. I said, who's home? Who's home? <laughs> what are you talking about? And I, he never got it. For the record, he never sang at the office Christmas party, and he didn't really stay in the mailroom that long. He started writing copy, coming up with folksy language to sell flour. He even made a big pitch for the agency's big account, Alka-Seltzer. He had a really edgy idea that involved the sick monkey and Alka-Seltzer. It was weird. It was crazy, but it never got made. After just a few years, Tom Burrell's ambition was too big for Wade Advertising. He found another agency willing to let him do edgier stuff. 
Needham, Harper, and Steers. And they, they didn't have to fly the CEO in from Florida to approve his hire. Tom was the uh, first black copy supervisor we'd ever had in the agency. And, well, he's, he's uh, very tall. He's uh, good-looking. He has a good voice. And he was a very gifted, uh, creative guy. So we were, we were drawn to him. Keith Reinhart was copyrighted there in the 60s. And I'm sure you know his work. You'll feel better knowing anytime, anywhere that like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And we got lots of uh, letters from English teachers who objected to our use of like a good neighbor instead of as a good neighbor. But it stayed with us and they're still using it today. This agency would go on to be one of those big historic innovators in advertising. And Keith Reinhardt says that Tom Burrell was one of the best copywriters they had. And in the weird way that advertising agencies work, these two were both colleagues, but they were also competitors. The two men were often pitted against each other to see who could come up with the best ideas. One incident I remember when we were both given the assignment to uh, convince people to uh, try Continental Airlines because they had wider seats, new wider seats. And we tried to crack it, and Tom and his group just nailed it. I think it was Tom himself who came up with this idea to reprint the uh, seat cushions of these new wider seats on Continental Airlines in a uh, double-page newspaper spread. And the headline simply invited readers to sit down on the newspaper spread and see how, how much wider it was, how much more comfortable. I mean, he really killed it. Remember, Robert, we're talking about the 1960s in Chicago. So the civil rights movement is going on. And in Chicago, there's sort of a Harlem Renaissance. You got Ebony Magazine, which is a really, really important media outlet for African-Americans, definitely at the time. And their ad reps are going around saying, this is a black magazine. The ads have to have black people in them. And that woke up a lot of people in the advertising world and the consumer market world in Chicago. These advertising agencies said, oh, yeah, okay, we need uh, black people in these ads. So what they would do is they would write a script for a TV ad, say, build a set, And first of all, you would hire white actors, like in this ad for Crest. There there are these two white kids brushing their teeth at a sink. I never beat Greg, except once in a toothpaste test. Greg's side used the same toothpaste as mine, but without floor stamps. My side used Crest and had 42% fewer cavities. So they would film the ad with the white actors, and then at the end of the day, swap out the cute white kids for equally cute black kids and have them pretty much do the same ad. I never could top Jeff. Then, in a toothpaste test, we were on opposite sides. My side used Crest. His side used the same toothpaste, but without floor stand. And that's when I beat Jeff, because my side had 21% fewer cavities with Crest. Burrell says it was pretty comical how little they thought about black consumers in these days. He told me this one famous story of a State Farm ad that they wanted to change for Ebony Magazine. Now, the original ad had a white couple laying in bed. There was a photograph on the side of the bed. And this is a a family photograph. And so then they did a black version of that same ad, but they forgot to change the photograph. So you got this black family in the bed. You got this white family with a photograph of the white family on the side. And so that was one example. Uh, Another example was uh, Schaefer's beer. Schaefer is the one beer to have when you're having more than one. 
a lot of brands like Schaefer's like to rely on nostalgia, you know, thinking about the good old days. Well, for black people, the good old days weren't that good, especially when it was before the Emancipation Proclamation. And at the time, the line was 1856. That was a very good year for beer. It was a very bad year for black people. <laughs> and this, this ad is showing up in Ebony magazine. There's something really strategically wrong with this, talking about how good a year 1856 was for beer. And it just screamed insensitivity. Screamed insensitivity. It was a horrible year for us. Robert, you can imagine just how weird this was. You got a black guy who's working at an all-white advertising agency, and Tom Burrell is going home to the south side of Chicago, which is sort of erupting in the civil rights movement, and there are these slogans, they're the Black Panthers, and there's this idea of black power. And, you know, he wrestles with this idea, and he decides he's going to come up with his own slogan that's especially meant for the advertising world. Black people are not dark-skinned white people. You know, when we talk to people about Tom Burrell, they quote this almost verbatim back to us. He said it so often. Black people are not dark-skinned white people. And in fact, Burrell decides to finally start his own advertising firm, really based on this principle, a black advertising agency that understood and could sell to the black consumer. Now, I know this, this seems immensely obvious now, but at the time, it felt like, you know, a real slap in the face to these white agencies he worked for. I had some uh, reservations about uh, some of the things he was saying. You may remember Tom's colleague, Keith Reinhardt. Whether or not we, as Caucasian uh, creative people, would be able to appeal to the black audience, I felt that uh, we could and that we had in some cases. But it was pretty hard to argue with Tom when he said, uh, you know, blacks are not white people with dark skin. I mean, we have a culture of our own and we need to express that. So Tom Burrell eventually got a partner, Emmett McBain, and they formed the firm Burrell McBain, one of the first all-black ad agencies in 1971. It would eventually become Burrell Communications. And the big brands came running, desperate. Brands like Jack Daniels, Ford, and one of his big first clients was Philip Morris and the Marlboro Man. Now, this was a big problem, selling the Marlboro Man to African Americans. The Marlboro Man was this rugged cowboy who was always filmed on horseback in like a Utah-like landscape, smoking cigarettes. The Longhorns come to Marlboro country. Marlboro 100s in the big gold. I don't even know where to start. I mean, first of all, when you start talking about Longhorns, you, you've, you've lost me. You've lost me on Longhorns. I'm done. And then when you start talking about 100 years ago, you lost me on that too because that's the last thing I want to do is go back uh, 100 years ago with a, a bunch of, uh, of uh, rural cowboy white guys. Uh, that doesn't sound too safe. So Philip Morris wanted to create a black Marlboro man. And of course, they came to Tom Burrell. What did you do to make it make it appeal to someone like you? Well, I took it out of the Marlboro country and I put it into the city. That's one thing. And the Marlboro Man became a, a, a very cool city 
city dude, very well, very stylish, well-dressed, cool, had a big cool factor going. Gone was the cowboy hat, the big belt buckle. The new black Marlboro man has a sweater. And he sits there and he stares out, not at the range, but at his swanky library. It is urbane. It is urban. It is definitely not a cowboy scene. We changed the line, uh, which was almost blasphemy. We changed the line from come to where the flavor is. And the line was simply where the flavor is. So we're basically saying that the city where black people are is where the flavor is. What Burrell did was take this general marketing ad and he tailored it for a black audience. But he really didn't want to be, you know, finishing someone else's work. He wanted to be doing something bigger. He had a bigger vision to craft an ad and a campaign from the ground up. And he got the chance. In fact, he got the biggest chance that an ad agency can get. If you've seen Mad Men, you know what this means. McDonald's called. McDonald's called. Well, actually, this guy called. Paul Schrage. You were in charge of marketing at McDonald's for quite a while, right? I started the marketing department. McDonald's. And in the 1970s, McDonald's had one goal and one goal only. Grow. Aggressively grow. It had already conquered the suburbs. It wanted to move big into the cities. It, well, it became apparent that the black consumer was growing in numbers and importance and uh, felt that we needed somebody that was specialized in that area. So I think this is one of those moments where uh, the phrase call Tom Burrell came out in the conference room. Yeah, it wasn't like there were, you know, sheets and sheets of, of black advertising agencies at the time. And when Tom Burrell finally sat down with McDonald's, he had to explain to them not, hey, guys, you need to sell the black people. That part they got. But it was the way that African-Americans interact with your restaurants is different than the way white people do. In the commercials at the time, they would show white families piling into the car. The idea was that McDonald's to them was a treat, a destination. In the black community, McDonald's meant something completely different. McDonald's was not used as a place where the family would go. The McDonald's was used as a place where working people would go and take a break uh, whenever they had a chance. It was a place where children would go very often by themselves. The average check for a family going to McDonald's on these special occasions was larger. The frequency was less. The average check in the black community was a lot smaller. I mean, kids were running in and out getting french fries. And Tom had this big realization, which was that McDonald's wasn't just a place to eat. McDonald's was also a place to work. It was a major employer in the city. And so he launched this series of ads known in the industry as Calvin, because it was about this kid named Calvin. Hey, isn't that Calvin? Mm, I haven't seen him for a while. What the way is hit? I heard he had a job. Yeah, dig that 80s hip-hop beat. Well, it shows a young black teenager. He's strolling through the hood, which looks strangely like the Brooklyn set on the back lot at Paramount. Nice cover now. Mm-hmm. Looks like responsibility has been good for him. Well, I'm just glad somebody believed in him enough to give him a chance. Mm, wonder where he's working. Welcome to McDonald's. May I help you? Well, Robert, it sounds kind of funny now. The ads are a little bit cheesy and straight ahead. But the thing is, they were really successful and they ran for a decade. And you followed Calvin as he worked this way up to becoming a manager at McDonald's. Calvin? Calvin, they used to hang out on the corner? So you own McDonald's. No, not yet. 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that in the alternative universe that Calvin is living in, he owns a McDonald's. Well, he probably owns like a whole chain of McDonald's or something like that. As somebody who watched a lot of TV in the 80s, it couldn't happen to a nicer kid. By the time this ad aired, Tom Burrell was certifiably famous. He was this huge name in advertising. And you know what happens when you're a huge name in advertising? You also get a lot of criticism. And there were people at the time who said, look, yeah, you made a success in this industry, but you made a success in this industry by selling brands that weren't exactly high-end luxury brands or health food stores. And I had to ask him about that. In your early success, some of the accounts that you got were, you know, the Marlboro Man we just talked about, Jack Daniels. The obvious question would be, you know, these are not the best things <laughs> for for African Americans. Right. I mean, that's right. And and this is how you're making your living. How do you feel about that? Oh, I, I struggled with that, and I struggle with it. Burrell ended up dropping the cigarette clients pretty early on in his career. What's important to note is that at the time. Burrell realized the kind of platform that he had with McDonald's. You know, he had a theory that he wanted to work on. It was called positive realism, which meant putting regular black people in real life situations on television. So it it had that kind of positive effect, even though arguably we were selling things uh, to them that, as we see now, were not good for them. And, you know, but there were no things that I recall selling that I declined to use. And once people saw that he was successful with doing that with McDonald's, a lot of the other big American blue chip brands came running to him. American Airlines, Toyota, Procter & Gamble, General Mills, Sears. And his slogan that black people aren't dark-skinned white people became kind of gospel in the advertising world. But not just relating to African Americans. The, The Burrell principle was one size doesn't fit all, and each group needs to be taken into account. What Burrell did opened the door for the kind of ethnic micro-targeting that we see today. Robert Clara is contributing editor at Adweek. And the way that he did that was by making mainstream brands not just aware of the black community as a very viable uh, community of consumers, but he also furnished them with a means to reach them that was new and effective. And then once that in and of itself became a mainstream thing, uh, the, the natural evolution of that trend was then for advertisers to say, oh, well, then there must be other groups that we can reach out to. And the idea of specialized advertising, targeted demographic advertising, grows out of that. But you wouldn't have had that if you didn't have the initial awareness of the broader demographic group that Burrell helped to create. Tom Burrell is basically retired now, though he does some consulting, sort of trying to help major brands understand how to use or not use hip-hop. After all this time, he still has to teach the same lessons he was teaching 50 years ago. You're not marketing if you're not targeting. And so this whole business about one-size-fits-all, I mean, there's still a kind of a, a movement on the part of wishful-thinking clients to say, hey, can't we just talk to one group of people and because it's so much easier. But the whole thing is, it, it, it is that we now have the, the ability to really get in and talk to people on a more individual basis. 
Now marketers realize it would be ridiculous to just try to sell to the black guy or the white guy. It's about selling to the young black gay guy who lives in West Hollywood, plays golf, listens to Frank Sinatra, and likes public radio. Wait, 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 wait. You play golf? Yeah, of course I play golf. (laughs) Well, the idea, Robert, is that more and more, you won't be thinking, who is this ad really for? Now you're supposed to think, this ad is especially for me. So, Sonari, before we get out of here, one of the things I thought was really fascinating was this phenomenon that you decided you wanted to call the Oprah effect. What is the Oprah effect? Well, it's something that Tom Burrell said to me that we couldn't get into the podcast, which is that the ads that he made that were for African-Americans did better with the white audience than the general market advertising did. So what you're saying is that white people dug ads meant for black people more than they liked ads with white people meant for white people? Yeah, the ads that were specifically aimed at African-Americans did better with the white group. And what that sort of shows, and we can see it an effect in our lives, right? And that's why I call it the Oprah effect. You know, my mom will watch Oprah. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming your mom watches Oprah. Mm -hmm. You know, Shireen will watch Oprah. Any number of minority women will watch another minority woman, right? The genius of Oprah is that she gets the women of color, and she's definitely going to get the, the white women, too. And then we see this all over. It's sort of weird to think of what Tom Burrell was doing when he came up with these ideas as subversive, right? I mean, on one level, you're just trying to get more people into McDonald's so they buy more French fries, right? But on another level, it's hard not to think of what Tom Burrell was doing as when he's talking about positive realism as political, right? He's trying to make space for black people in mainstream American life. And I mean, like... You know, when he came up with these ideas in the 60s and the 70s, he's a part of the cultural conversation. Tom Burrell and and Jesse Jackson, they talk. I mean, Tom Burrell is with a group of men, mainly men at the time, who are transforming the way African-Americans are seen in advertising. And he's thinking politically. He's living through... You know, Martin Luther King coming to Chicago and living there. Mm-hmm. This is really important to him, showing African-Americans in a positive light. Sonari Clinton is a business correspondent for NPR. Sonari, what song is giving you life? Well, the song that's giving me life is Whack Whack. <laughs> it's by the group Young Holt Unlimited. They're a Chicago group. Sonari, do the outro credits with me. Okay, Gene, apparently that's our show. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. I'm at Sonari. We want to hear from you. Email us at codeswitch at npr.org. Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. And leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show. This episode was produced by Francis Harlow from Planet Money. We had additional producing help from Maria Paz Gutierrez, Leah Danella, and Sammy Yenigan. A shout out to all my homies on the Code Switch team, Kat Chow, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Adrian Florido, Shereen marisol Miraji, and of course, Walter Way Watson. Steve Drummond and Sammy Yenigan edited this episode. We had original music by Ramteen Arablui. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Sonari Glenton. By the way, before we leave, I made a playlist of the music that I was listening to, Gene. 
during this episode, which we put out on Spotify. You can find it on the website, npr.org slash codeswitch. So the songs that are giving you life. The songs that are giving me life and have continued to. Bye, guys. Be easy. Thanks for listening. If you're looking for a new podcast to try, how about Planet Money? Give it a fresh listen. One thing people say about Planet Money is how much they love listening to it, even though they don't care about business or economics. It's just a smart show with great stories that help explain your world. It's explanatory journalism at its best for a time that really needs some sane reporting to focus on the big questions. Find Planet Money on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.